Please rise for the reading of God's Word. The 73rd Psalm. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They do not stumble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their eyes overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have been betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Until... I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end, their end. Truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment. Swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes. O Lord, when you arose yourself, you despised them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in my heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who was unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. This is the word of God for the people of God. Yeah. You may be seated. Well, good morning. 
Uh, it's good to be back with you. As Laura said, my name is Matt. I'm the pastor at Seven Hills Presbyterian Church just down the road, uh, or down the red line, up the red line, I don't know, in Davis Square, Somerville. Um, Travis is there this morning. Um, and as Laura said, I, uh, we're, we're swapping. It's like the Subway Series. It's like a Yankees-Mets. I, I'm a baseball fan, but I, I, don't, I don't really want to be compared with either of those teams. So I'm kind of offended. Um, but it's a privilege. I was here uh, several times uh, when you were without a pastor. Um, I've gotten to know and love your pastor, and it's a privilege to, uh, to be back with you here this morning. Um, so would you join me in prayer, and we'll look at Psalm 73 together. Father, with uh, the psalmist we pray, uh, who have we in heaven but you? In earth, uh, what is there to desire besides you? You are our portion forever. Would we be uh, convicted and challenged and stirred up uh, to love you more deeply as we see and taste uh, your deep love for us by your word and by your spirit this morning? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I see a place on uh, a daily basis. Uh, in our house, it usually begins uh, by hearing sort of a blood-curdling scream from our two-year-old. Uh, the toy that he had been playing with had been seized by his older brother, uh, depending on who you believe. And uh, though there may be hundreds of other toys, we have way too many toys, uh, he comes to us in tears, pointing, pleading, I need it. He doesn't use the word unfair, but everything about his face, his furrowed brow, his body language uh, is declaring it, unfair. It's a word that we heard a lot on vacation a couple weeks ago with my wife's extended family as we all shared one house. Uh, Her sister who has five boys constantly saying, it's not fair, it's not fair. And their father uh, said what probably a lot of us heard growing up, Life's not fair. Get used to it. The problem is, we don't really get used to it. We move on from squabbles over siblings taking toys, but the unfairness, the injustice of the world continues to trouble us down to our very souls. We feel deep down that good things should happen to good people and bad things should happen to bad people. And yet, this is not the reality that we see in this world right now. We see manipulation and exploitation. We see people cutting corners at work and getting promoted because of it. We hear from a good friend who, at a young age, has received a cancer diagnosis. We look in the news this morning and we read of shootings in Dorchester yesterday and a racially motivated shooting in Jacksonville, which should break our hearts. Our hearts should break over the injustice of the world. We experience any number of ailments or struggles ourselves. And like our child selves, we cry out to God, at least in our hearts, unfair. Well, this is a psalm about how to faithfully wrestle with the unfairness, the injustice, 
amidst the complexities of life in a fallen world. If left unchecked, we can spiral into bitterness and envy and doubting God's goodness. It's all here in Psalm 73. But so too is the path out of all that. The main question this psalm takes up is, how are we freed from envy in a world that seems unfair? How can we have purity of heart, to use a phrase from verse 1 that I'll explain uh, further How can we have purity of heart in an unjust world? Just two sections, two points, my outline. First, the problem of unfairness, and second, the perspective of faith. So first, the problem of unfairness. Verse 1 serves as an introduction to the psalm. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. To be pure in heart, it doesn't mean perfection. It means being totally committed to God, wholehearted towards him. The opening verse then not only describes what God can do for those who seek him, he is good to them, but what God can be. For those who seek him with their whole heart, he will be their everything, and he will not disappoint. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart, but as for me, Asaph is the name of the psalmist here, Asaph says, as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. To lose a foothold, lose your grip on a mountain is to be in danger of going over the edge, plunging into the ravine, possibly falling to your death. How did Asaph nearly stumble and fall? Verse three, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. And he goes on to describe the prosperity of the wicked in verse 4 and 5. Some other translations, I think, make, a, uh, make this a, little, a bit more relatable to modern ears. Uh, the NIV reads, They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from common human burdens. They're not plagued by human ills. This is a timeless description of at least a perception that there's this group of people, we might call them the elites, who, as Jamar Tisby put it, just seem to backstroke through life, unimpeded by common human struggles. And social media adds to the impression that others are prospering, whether that's reality or not. Study after study has shown that the more you scroll, the sadder you get. Why? Because of what psychologists call social comparison theory. You compare yourself, even subconsciously, not to the reality of others' lives, but to the the version of their lives, the false reality that they post on social media. The psalmist here doesn't have social media, of course, but he does have a sense of social comparison. Comparison is the thief of joy, said uh, Theodore Roosevelt or Mark Twain. Usually those are among the two names given when we don't know who originally said something. Whoever said it, it rings true. Comparison is the thief of joy. Like a child setting their heart on the one toy they can't have, comparison ruins the possibility that you can be happy with what you do have. What almost causes Asaph's destruction was his envy of the wicked because it caused him to doubt, going back to the opening line of the psalm, that God is truly good. How can God be good when the wicked prosper? 
while the good, like me, thinks Asaph, suffer. So don't miss this. There's a kind of double warning here in these verses, both to those who prosper and to those who envy their prosperity. Like in Jesus' parable of the prodigal son, there are two ways to be lost, two ways to go off the path. There's arrogance and wicked living, but there's also a pride and self-righteousness that comes when you think that you've been really good and deserve better than what you've been given, and that is its own form of arrogance. We'll look at the warning to the first group first. Prosperity can often lead to arrogance and wickedness. See verse 6, those who don't struggle in life and are not in trouble like the rest of mankind, therefore pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. It's easy to think in our society, which claims to be a meritocracy, that if you've been successful, that your success is just a result of your hard work, and if you've succeeded in your hard work, then those who are not successful are just not working hard enough. And so the prosperous, unless they're given some different perspective, can very naturally become proud. And even in a way that may disdain those who they view as below them. This is why the Bible warns us over and over again to be wary of material things, worldly success. The book of Deuteronomy warns the people coming into the promised land Take care lest you forget the Lord your God who brought you this far. Lest you say in your heart, it is by my hand that I have prospered. Eugene Peterson summarizes the Beatitudes, blessed are those who feel their need of God. But woe to those who do not. Woe to those who think that they have everything there is to have without God. It often leads to arrogance and to oppression. Verse 8, they scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. Verse 11, they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease, they increase in riches. So what am I saying? That we should desire to suffer? Well, no. Does suffering always bring about something good in our lives? No. If we think of some of the the complicated uh, villains of good stories, uh, they're often those who have suffered deeply and have let them shape them, not for good, but forge their, their evil. Think of maybe Voldemort from the Harry Potter series or Uh, Nag the Nameless from the Wingfeather Saga. This, sadly, often fits the profile of a mass shooter, someone who is bullied by the prosperous wicked, but lets that resentment fester so that they become the bitter wicked. I'm not saying that we should desire to suffer. I'm saying when it comes, we should not turn away from God but walk with him in our pain and suffering. Cry out to God. Let him bring truth and healing rather than become embittered. 
Okay, so that's the first warning. A life of ease, of prosperity, can easily lead to arrogance and injustice, which has the potential to perpetuate a cycle of violence and injustice, unless there's a change in perspective. But it's not only the prosperous wicked who need to gain perspective, it's the psalmist also. And the second way to be lost, to lose purity of heart, is to envy, verse 3. And what is envy? It's to want someone else's life, or at least some part of their life, to feel not only that they don't deserve the good that they have, but that you do deserve it. Envy ultimately is rooted in a sort of spiritual self-pity, self-righteousness, which often minimizes the reality of your own sin while maximizing the sin of the one you envy and presumes that you deserve better from God than what he's given. Envy ultimately says that God and what he's given are not enough. Not enough for you to be happy, content. You need something more than God in order to be happy. The strongest statement Asaph makes, verse 13, all in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. He's saying, I've tried so hard to be good, to be faithful, and what do I have to show for it? Verse 14, all day long I've been stricken. As the NIV renders it, every morning brings new punishments. He tried to live a good life, but it has not brought him wealth or freedom from trouble. Therefore, he says, it's all been in vain. I'm tired of being good if this is what it gets me. And maybe you felt this way before. Maybe you feel this way today. If you've never tried to, to live a good, righteous life, then you, you, you probably don't feel this way. But if you have, and the more you have, the more awful it may feel when you look at the unjust world around you. The more susceptible you may be to envy, to crying out to God, why is this happening to me? I've given you so much, and this is how you repay me? But the psalmist's complaint unmasks his heart, which is not primarily driven by a passion for justice. He's not outraged on behalf of others, but for himself. Asaph confesses later in the psalm that this attitude towards God was brutish and ignorant. Think of it like this. A young couple begins to date, and then the boyfriend finds out that his girlfriend's family is actually very wealthy, and there's a trust fund set up for her. They get engaged, but then while planning the wedding, her family loses a great deal of wealth, and she loses the trust fund. And her fiancé becomes angry and calls off the wedding. Well, the young woman would be devastated, right? Not only at the loss of her fiancé, but because it will have become obvious that he didn't love her for her, but only for what his union to her could give him. He was using her. And when we come to God and say, I've served you, I've lived a good life, and what do I have to show for it? Are we not doing the same thing? It shows we only want him for the wealth that he can give, not the wealth that he is. 
that we were only using him. Tim Keller writes, when we say, I'll serve you, I'll worship you, only if X happens, then it is X that we love, and God is just the necessary apparatus for obtaining it. X is the thing we've really set our hearts on, not God. Asaph, who was a a priest or a, a worship leader in the temple, then says, verse 15, if he had aired these complaints publicly, he would have betrayed, he would have led astray the generation of God's children, God's people. This is probably why he says he nearly slipped, nearly lost his grip. As much as this was a heart struggle, wrestling with God, he did not speak or act out of his sinful attitude towards God. He, in a sense, took it to the right place. He took it to God. So what pulled him out of his wrestling with God and his his inmost soul? And how are we freed from envy in a world that seems unfair? How do we maintain purity of heart? Well, this is the second point of my outline, the perspective of faith. There's a sense in which the psalmist is uh, looking the wrong way. Uh, Eugene Peterson's The Message, paraphrase, brings this out in the first section of the psalm. Uh, He says, God is good, but I nearly missed it, missed seeing his goodness, because I was looking the other way, looking at the people around me. He was looking the wrong way and blinded by envy. And there's nothing so blinding as envy. I'll give you a personal example of this. Uh, When I was in high school, probably about uh, my junior year, there was a young woman I had a crush on, and my friend Chad started going out with her. Now, Chad was a good friend, uh, but as long as he was dating her, he was the worst, the worst person ever. In my mind, he had no redeeming qualities whatsoever. I remember literally thinking, what does anyone see in Chad? I was so blinded by uh, jealousy, envy. But as soon as the relationship ended, I loved Chad. What a great friend. So likable. How could you not like Chad? And he's still a friend to this day. Did not, uh, that's, that was not a story about my wife, by the way. So. The psalmist has been blinded by envy. You know, um, people sometimes put blinders on uh, parade horses, race horses, so that they can only see what's right in front of them and not, not be distracted by the crowd. Well, that's the psalmist here, but with a, a negative effect. He lacked perspective because he had blinders on to see only what was right in front of him. They prevented him from looking up, in a sense, and seeing God, seeing the eternal reality. So what will remove our blinders? We see in verse 16 that the first step out of this sinkhole of bitterness and envy is worship. When I sought how to understand this, this problem of unfairness, the psalmist says, it seemed a wearisome task. It troubled me deeply until I went into the sanctuary of God. See, we come and worship not just to have an experience, to get a high, a pick-me-up. Plenty of things can do that. But to, in the presence of the God of love and truth, have our perspectives aligned to the truth, have our blinders removed, to see things rightly and clearly. And that sometimes doesn't feel very good, but it saves us a lot of heartache in the long run. 
I heard the story of a, a medieval painting that was uncovered and it was brought to this famous art critic. Uh, all the previous art critics who had uh, looked at it uh, had known of the artist's other work uh, and had trouble making sense of this painting. It seemed distorted or out of proportion. They thought maybe it was the artist was just having a bad day or it just wasn't his best work. But this one art critic looked at it and looked at it from several different angles and realized something that all those who'd looked at it previously had missed, that it was commissioned to be used for worship at the front of a sanctuary. And it was to be viewed from below. The Christian worshipers were to look up at it from their knees. When we come into the presence of the living God, there are certain things that we can only see when we come to him on our knees. Not as an object of speculation, but as an object of worship, adoration. What we see with many people throughout the scriptures is that when we come before the living God in awe and worship, even if there are many things we don't understand, many unanswered questions, we will end up confessing that he is good. In fact, he's better than we could have imagined. And that even if we don't understand, he has his reasons. Asaph has only been looking at those surrounding him. It's here, verse 17, when the blinders are removed and he lifts his eyes to God that he can see the full picture. And what does he see? In the presence of the true God, he begins to gain long-term perspective that though the, the, even if the uh, though the wicked prosper today, even if they continually prosper throughout their lives, which is a big if, even if they continue to prosper throughout their lives, their prosperity will not always be so. They will slip and fall and be swept away, verse 19. And it's good news that the evil and oppression and injustice of this world does not escape the Lord's notice. He won't let anyone get away with anything. There will be a payment for every wrong. God would not be good if he were not just. Though his judgment doesn't work the way that yours and mine does, thankfully, and not on the same timetable, he will one day make all things right, all things new, so that peace and justice will reign forever. And in the afterword of this life, verse 24, that word afterward an afterward in which we will be received into the glory of God, like an afterward in a book that completely changes the way that you viewed the whole story. All of this will one day feel like a mere dream, verse 20. Asaph begins to see all of this, though he can physically see none of it. He sees it as we must from the perspective of faith. Faith is, uh, to paraphrase Sally Lloyd-Jones, uh, paraphrasing Hebrews 11, trusting what God has said, what God has promised, more than what your eyes can see. From the perspective of faith, Asaph sees that the rich without God are actually poor and on their way to being eternally poor if nothing changes. The arrogant without God are to be pitied. And actually, 
He is the one who is rich, who has everything, because he has the Lord, who is everything. He is the one who is blessed beyond measure. God hasn't been holding out on him because God has given him himself. And C.S. Lewis has written, God cannot give us peace and happiness apart from himself because it is not there. There is no such thing. Asaph begins to realize that he actually has far more than he deserves. And this must have been driven home for him by the, the way that he entered into the sanctuary of God. While there are many parallels between him and us entering into the sanctuary to worship the Lord, there was this difference. How would Asaph have entered into the sanctuary? By sacrifice. He would have sacrificed an animal. Seems this is what he has in mind when he confesses in verses 21 and 22. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you or before you. What's he saying? That beast that was sacrificed, that should have been me. I envied the arrogance, and yet I have been arrogant. I have not treasured you for the wealth that you are, but only sought to use you for what I thought I vainly deserved. I now see what I deserve. I deserve to be out there being slaughtered like that beast. You see, we think we want God to be fair until we realize the depth of our sin. Then we realize we don't want God to be fair. We want him to be gracious and merciful. And thankfully, he is. For what was signified in the animal sacrifice of Asaph's time, which was required to enter into the presence of the living God, what was signified has been fulfilled in the once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus Christ. The cross of Christ gives us the perspective we need to see things rightly, to see God from our knees looking up at the cross, at the God who suffered. God is far from indifferent to our suffering. He himself came and suffered so that it would not always be. At the cross, we see God's justice. No wrong will go unpunished. And at the cross, we see his mercy Though I am a beast who deserved to be sacrificed, though I am the sheep who went astray, the Lord has laid his sin on me. My sin on him. To gain a right perspective, we must see, we must behold the Lamb of God who takes away our sin. He was slain like a beast so that we would not be slain for our beastliness. And because he was utterly swept away, we are brought near to God, verse 28. So having confessed the sinful, envious attitude of his heart, Asaph can then say with confidence, in the same breath, verse 23, nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. We should gain great confidence here. If God doesn't let go of Asaph's hand, then he won't let go of yours. Does God let go of your hand when you mess up? No. When you're brutish and ignorant, when you're envious, 
when you're arrogant, when you're a beast toward him, no, he won't let go of your hand. When your heart wanders, when you want other things more than you want him, no. He will hold your hand, verse 23. And Asaph only knew half of it. God is good to those who are pure in heart, but the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that he's good to those who are not pure in heart. Romans 5, it's, it's one thing for God to love good people, and for a good person, one might even dare to die. But God shows his love in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. When we truly see all this, we realize with Asaph how foolish, how silly it was to envy the arrogant who have nothing because they don't have the Lord. While those who have the Lord have everything worth having, verse 25, whom have I in heaven but you, and there is nothing on earth I desire besides you. There is nothing else besides you, beyond you. My heart and my flesh may fail, but God is the strength of my heart, my portion, my reward forever. Those who set their whole hearts on him in life will not be disappointed. What makes heaven heaven is that God is there. We may think of heaven as the place where dreams come true or where those who have gone before us are, are looking down at us fondly. But those in heaven are caught up in wonder, love, and praise to the one who is worthy of all power and honor and glory and praise. They know it now. Asaph struggled to know if seeking God would be worth it. He wondered if it was all in vain. He now sees from the perspective of faith, from the perspective of eternity, that it was all worth it. For those who seek God, find him. They get him now and forever. And there's nothing else worth having. He is beyond compare. Truly, God is good. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we join in uh, the choir of heaven, which we see with eyes of faith now as they cry to you, worthy are you, the lamb who was slain, to receive honor and glory and power and praise. Pray it in Jesus' name, amen.